I tried my best to try to find a good fitting sermon on the privilege of rejoicing in the life of Christ <coughs> and actually zero in on his resurrection and it just seemed like there was a heaviness came over my spirit and there was actually an impression, not a voice audibly, but an impression simply by the Spirit that says, were there no Gethsemane, there would be no Calvary. Were there no Calvary, there would be no resurrection. And it just seemed to me like that we missed some of the important events that led up to the resurrection of Christ, which gives us life and that more abundantly. And if we could understand it actually uh, in our spirit the cost, I'm sure all of us have, in a sense, looked back over Calvary, looked back over Gethsemane, and, and uh, thank God for uh, the fact that he was able to be and do what he was yes. supposed to be yes. and do, but I'm not so sure it penetrates our spirit and penetrates our life as to what it costs our Savior to bring us eternal life. We have that, of course, through his resurrection, and the Bible says that he be not raised and we're still dead in our sins, and we know that. But he could never resurrect it had he not died, and he could not have died had he not gone to Gethsemane. And there, in a sense, is where he died to flesh and to will. And, of course, then he gave up the ghost. Nobody took his life from him. He said that. He gives it. So this morning I want to take a little time to concentrate upon Gethsemane, upon Jesus and those hours, moments of the battle of the soul, the time when he actually could have went either way because he had the same choice that you and I make every day. I was talking to somebody over the telephone trying to encourage them to make a start in their life uh, for the Lord. And uh, they mentioned that they had been watching the uh, betrayal, of course, and everything that comes on the television. And they watched and one individual, uh, this individual was struck with the fact that Judas betrayed the Lord. And he just was just almost irritated with the fact that somebody that could have walked with God and known Him in the flesh could have done such a thing and then it said just something pierced their spirit and said we betray Him every day. Amen. And I thought God if we could just look at that and realize that in all actuality we do betray Him. He has aspirations for our life. Yes. It's not one of us here but what God has marked the course for our life. He has just simply brought us and He knows our potential. He knows what He can do with us. Now we can do nothing in ourselves, but He has marked our course, charted our course upon His map. And uh, when we don't reach the potential, then we betray Him. There will be one final betrayal, of course, when we stand before the Lord, not having reached the potential. But every day there's a potential in our life that we don't reach. That's right. Things in our life that God wants to accomplish from us that only we could accomplish. Individuals that only we could touch through just the telephone call or just the handshake or just 
a concern about them that nobody else could touch. And life goes on as usual with us. Uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm not talking to you, you dismiss it. But life goes on as usual with us. We become involved in our own ways and our own things. And we don't recognize opportunity when it's right before us. You don't have to stay home and pound an altar or come to church to pound an altar. There's opportunities presented to us every day. Yes. But sometimes we walk so far from God that opportunities come, knocks, passes. And sometimes opportunity just knocks once. And then it goes on. And lives then are going on without any witness. And I usually don't go any place on Saturdays because I don't like the grind of humanity and everything that they, they do. And they seem like they go wild. You know, you go into stores and into the malls and you get run over. We was in one place where my wife was looking for a dress and a little old lady about half my size almost knocked me down. I guess she thought I was going to buy a dress. I don't know why. But uh, she almost knocked me down to give to some, something that I had in my hand. Well, I wasn't going to buy it. I was looking at it. But anyway, the mad rush of life that we see daily and especially on weekends, and I thought this is leading up to what they call Easter, which is actually just Passover. And I really wanted to go and have a lesson on Passover, when the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus really was, but God would not allow that. But anyways, we saw individuals, and their minds seemed to be so far from God. I mean, their conversations, you just stand and listen, and their conversations was upon... Uh, what I got for an Easter outfit and what I got for my children and, and uh, the bunny rabbits and all of these things and I thought, God, we're so far from you. We don't really recognize it. It's a commercialized type of thing. Christians have fell into that head over heels and a lot of us have taken God's time and God's money. And I thought as we was going to Brian's wedding, we'd run across the disaster uh, uh, a wreck head on collision, two automobiles, and two was dead, and we don't know about the others. And uh, I could not help but think were they Christians? Were they have their what did they have their mind on? This one lady pulled out on no passing zone, uh, just simply head on, just as fast as they can go head on. And I thought, what was their mind on? Were they Christians? If we were not Christians, uh, who passed up the opportunity to witness to them or were they ever really witnessed to? And these things bother me as I look at, out and as I go to the marketplaces and I, I look around and I think, how many people here really know God? And then I, I see churches. I, I watch them on television and and I see I, I see the, the huge congregation and the huge crowd. And I can't help it. I have to ask myself, how many of them really know Jesus? How many of them are really know Him? Uh, how many just come for the finery, or how many have had a uh, just a kind of a carnal thing with Him, been introduced maybe in some way, have never shed a tear of repentance, have never known what it's like to be touched by divinity? And I can't help it. I wonder sometimes if this is not one of the greatest disasters and calamities there is to cause people and fool them into thinking that they're going to get into the kingdom of God and have never made preparations at all and don't even know Jesus. It bothers me and I know that I know that the majority of that is going to fall upon the leadership
attempt because it's up to them to warn the people. It's up to us as leaders to tell them that there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. And it is up to us to warn people that just any way of living is not going to get the job done. And it bothers me. But I was thinking, the Lord began to move upon my spirit to some way again to try to present Gethsemane and the cross and the agony of Jesus and what he went through in order to bring us the beautiful life that we can live in him. I want to begin at St. Mark, the 14th chapter, and the 32nd and the 38th verse, which will uh, begin our lesson this morning. Of course, this is after everything. The last Passover has been celebrated. Jesus institutes, of course, the Lord's Supper. Peter's denial is foretold. And then they go to the garden. And it says that when they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, which always seemed to be the inner circle that Jesus allowed to go with him while the others didn't go. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were there. Uh, anyway, they were there beginning to be, and Jesus, of course, began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, a burden. And saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly powerful unto death. Carry you here and watch. He went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might not pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away thy cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Now you have to understand here that this was an impossibility with God. God, by his own word, had already bound himself to the fact that it's going to take uh, uh, blood without taint to move man. So it was not possible that God could take this from him. It had already been said in ages, had it been possible, under a plea like that in place which was sinless, I'm sure he would have said, that's fine, I'll find another way. God had already set the course in eternity, and it was not possible. But he said, if it's possible, and then he said, nevertheless, what I will, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou, couldst thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray. Now this was not, Jesus was not asking this for his sake. Although it would have been nice to think that these individuals thought enough of him that in his hour of misery and problems and trouble, they could have at least felt it enough to pray. But this was for their sake. He says that, watch you and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And of course, you see that from Peter and from the others, yes. that they were subject to temptation. Now, the focus of this, of course, is the heavy burden. Something uh, that is heavy. Probably one of the heaviest things that ever fell upon the shoulders of Jesus. The worst thing that he ever had to endure. And the focus of this, in fact, is as he prayed. Of course, it seemed like that a hand that reached down from heaven with a cup filled with the dregs of every man's sins. Sin that was ever committed. Every sin of every individual.
until it ever lived, or ever would live, or ever was living then, fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was this indescribable burden, so to speak, that pressed him down. You notice what it says? He was very burdened. He's so amazed. I was intrigued by the fact that one individual made mention uh, during the conference at Nashville of preaching that there is no burdens uh, in a Christian life. And I thought how ironic that he would say that when our own example was burdened down yes. heavily. Now, yes. it doesn't mean for us to carry our burdens. It means for us to carry the burden of Christ. Amen. His burdens are easy and they are light. But there is burdens in this life and Jesus felt that burden and it pressed him down. Now, he knew the agony of the cross if he drank. He also knew the agony of all humanity if he did not. So you have the Savior of the world making a choice in Gethsemane. Now Gethsemane, of course, is uh, that suggests a lesson in itself. Uh, its location was east of Kidron and beyond the Mount of Olives. It was favorite resting place of Jesus and prayer place yes. of Jesus. Yes. And of course, it was actually oil press used for pressing oil from pulp. Uh, oil from the pulp or the place of the olives. They used two types of presses, the pound press and the screw press. From these olives, of course, came three types of oil. Each one was depending upon how the olives ripened or matured during their ripening season. This virgin oil, there was no pulp or no flesh in that. It was had ripened right, and they had the ability to press all of the pulp or flesh from that. And then there was, came from that refined oil, where there was a small amount, about 60% of uh, flesh or pulp in that. And then, of course, there was sulfur oil, where it had much flesh and much pulp, 30%. And Jesus talks about that sometimes in our life. We went for 30, 60, or 100 depending upon uh, what we are when season comes, what we do, how do we mature, and what we are. And it was all of this that Jesus had in mind when he met and conquered his most powerful foe. Now, you've got to bear in mind that Jesus met the enemy on his grounds ever since he began his ministry. Never one time was there a failure, but... He never met him like he's going to meet him in Gethsemane and like he's going to meet him on the cross of Calvary. Now in Gethsemane, it says something there, and he began to be sore amazed, astonished. He began to be beside himself. Now this was alien to Jesus. This is a place here we never saw him before. And we've got to recognize what is happening here to this man. What we have is a desire of human flesh to live. We also have to ask us the question, was it necessary for Jesus to be subjected to things like this? And we have to realize when God views his highest creation, which is man, his desire is to see a reflection of himself. 1 Peter 1.16 quotes Leviticus 11.44, and he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now that's quite a statement when you come to realize it. How can we do this? Oh How can we find the holiness of God? You see, it would have been impossible for us 
any of us with our temporal hang-ups and all the things that we have, it would have been impossible, regardless of what deeds we do, regardless of how good we are, it is impossible for us to reach the holiness of God. Right. It's not possible for man in all his goodness, whatever he can do, to ever reach the state of holiness in God. So there has to be something done about that, and there has to be a bridge made in that bridge from man's degenerate state to God's holy state, of course, was Christ. Jesus Christ. We could never be what we are. We could never have the Spirit of God in us, which makes us holy. The only holy thing about us is the indwelling Spirit of Almighty God. I think Amen. if we could recognize that, we would appreciate the Holy Ghost a lot more than we do. Because it's the only being of divinity with humanity left us without excuse. We cannot justifiably question if God had a body like mine, and we've dealt with this before, lived in my environment with my problems, would he still be holy? Well, he was. I mean, that was a life he had to live. Now, if we have any idea that it was easy for Jesus to live a sinless life, then we are wrong. That's true. Because it was not second nature to him. He had a nature just as we are, but it become first nature to him because he always always resisted human flesh, right. always resisted doing anything on his own, knowing he had the power to do holy. He was still holy, victorious over some greater obstacles than you and I will ever be victorious over. We saw the unholiness of man, or Jesus did, and he was murdered. When he saw what man was, and we have to ask ourselves the question, can Christ transform unholiness into holiness? Can he actually do anything with the human heart or soul? And not only is he able, but he wants to. Yes. He wants and desires to make a transformation in lives. And the only way he can do that is through his holiness. Transformed from a church destroyer to a church builder. Yes. 120 in the upper room. Changed them from weak and meek, despairing, trembling people that hid from the Roman uh, guards and so on and transformed them through the power of the Holy Spirit to strong, sure, courageous soldiers of a purpose. And the church was born because of the holiness of God. Now, we can shout about those transformations. We can look and say, well, I can see where he really did a transforming job upon them. But how wonderful it is that we will recognize it. How wonderful it is that we today can know the transforming power. I think we would have more tears streaming down our cheeks if we recognized the reality of what it cost Jesus to share his holiness with us. Right. And we can realize that he did that for a purpose, not just to make us feel good. You see, he left it where we could have this treasure in earthen vessels. Yes. But let's get to the fact of where Jesus is on the, on the 34th verse. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Let's back up one. Uh, and began to be sore amazed and to be very burdened. Now you'll see a different Jesus here uh, than you ever saw from the first beginning of his life. And it's necessary that we understand that. I'm going to carry you back to some of those places. For three years, Jesus lived in close contact with 12 ordinary men. They were just men. They did not have the Holy Ghost. They were with Jesus. And in the same situations when he was victorious, 
they were defeated. They were his followers, and they were defeated uh, when he was victorious. When he was an unshakable, when he was not moved, they were driven like waves of the sea, driven by winds and tossed. Now you have to ask yourself, what was the difference? What was the difference between this man called Jesus and his disciples at the time? And the difference was why? He had God's life in him, and the body of Christ was actually uh, God's life. Actually, it was God living. Actually, it was God demonstrating. Actually, it was God walking. It was God thinking. It was God touching. It was God speaking. It was God's life lived through the vessel of Jesus Christ. How do they ordinary? Well, Christ has allowed us the same privilege. It is God's life in us. Right. It is God's life that ought to speak. It is God's eyes that ought to see through ours. God's hands that ought to touch. God's feet that ought to walk. All of those things are actually really ours if we have God's power in our life. The desire of Jesus was to make his disciples and to make us partakers of his life and of his spirit. Notice he said in John 6, 53, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. In other words, it's all or nothing. And that's what bothers me when we can just haphazardly claim Christ, come a waving acquaintance with Him, and still somewhere, somehow, feel like everything's going to just turn out all right and we're going to enter into the kingdom of God shouting glory. When He told His disciples, you've got to eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you've got to drink His blood, and if you don't, there's no life in you. Come on. Now that's a challenge from the Bible. I didn't make that. Now let's understand this morning the union of God and man and understand that it's the twofold. It's not necessarily what God is doing now, but it's who He is. Come on. It's what His abilities to do in our life is. So let's look real closely at that. What was the nature of the sacrificial Christ? Just who was He? Just who was Jesus? Well, He wasn't no ordinary hero. No one else could or no one else would drink of our cup of sin and death, That's right. that we may drink of His, which is life and holiness. That's quite a trade, isn't it? When He comes and drinks of the bitter drinks of our sin and our life and takes that upon the cross and then turns around and gives us life and holiness, what a trade and what a master. Let's look at Him again now. We're going to see Him in the garden. We're going to do our best to recognize the situation and realize that he was not a superhuman, a superhero of some type. You will have to know him again, calm and serene. He was the master of every situation. From the time he was even a boy, he seemed to understand who he was and what his, his, uh, his plan for God was. As a lad of twelve, he stood without fear, expounding wisdom that has been unequal even yet today. Stood before those unbelievers. And you see the power of life of Christ in there after 40 days fasting in the wilderness with beasts and the tempter as companions, he was more than a conqueror. He had been brought face to face with every human need. Disease was subject to his power. Demons had to flee at the sound of his voice. Though he mocked and ridiculed, Jesus didn't revile. And courage like that was reflected through his suffering that even the centurion remarked, this man was indeed the Son of God. And so knowing this and following the life of Jesus, 
What brought the burden and agony against him? What caused him to say, what caused the writer to write down? He began to be sore amazed. It seemed like he began to be a little bit confused. It seemed like that he wasn't the same individual that he was before when he met the powers of hell and when he cast out devils and uh, when he freed the demoniac from the powers of evil. There was something sinister here in Gethsemane. In other words, the choice was going to have to be made, and he doesn't seem like, when you look at him, the same man that he always had been. And he said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. He had never portrayed any sorrow at all. Everything was upbeat with Jesus. When he spoke to his disciples, and when he spoke to multitudes, and yet, here he is, sore amazed, very burdened, Marvel unto death, asking his favorite disciple, so to speak, to carry with him and watch. We have to see here the matchless Son of God, the one with all power in heaven and earth, yes. ready to bow yes. beneath every sin that's ever been known to man. I don't know if there's word to describe a burden like that. I don't know if we have the mentality to, to understand what was happening to this man as he finally was coming close to what he was born for, as he finally began to wrestle with an enemy that he had never really known before, and all its power and all of its it, all all of things that it was subjecting him to. He was there with all of it, alone, so to speak, knowing in a sense he had a choice. He had always known he had a choice. He would not have been uh, a man if he did not have a choice. But let's watch him as he walks to Gethsemane. And the, the Bible, just I just read it to you. We see him, as he walks in there, something heavy, like a heavy weight falls on his heart. I think it was far heavier than the cross that he fell under. This was a spiritual thing, and it actually, uh, in, a, in, in our language, took the wind out of his sails. He was brought to a place we never saw him before. Let me impress that on you. You never saw him like this before. If you can read your Bible at all, you never saw his actions like this before. And his spiritual strength far superseded his natural strength. And the horror of that great burden, that, that sin settles over his soul and his spirit and never before had he met a foe like this as the cold clammy hands of death and, and everything reached out to embrace him. Now his disciples noticed his troubled spirit. Yes, they did. Now, they had never seen Jesus like he is now. He is always the master of every situation. Always. And they can depend on him but now he's different. As he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. And then let's follow him just a little farther. We need to be in Gethsemane. Yes. We need to understand something is being worked out for humanity there. And he goes a little farther. And he prays and humanity cries. If it is in any possibility at all, remove this cup from me. And then the spirit takes control and says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And on one hand was the will of the spirit that he's already carried out the plan of redemption. 
And of course, on the other hand, was a force that was very strong, stronger than you probably can imagine. His place was revolting against the horror of the hour. The sin that he had never known was about to be upon his shoulders. He was about to ingest. He was feeling something about ready to come upon him that he had never known before. He had never tasted sin before. He didn't know what it was like. And then all of that, that ugliness of it all was coming down upon him. Wouldn't that change this person's attitude even with all his holiness? Sometimes we don't understand the ugliness of our sin. Sometimes we don't understand what we were, where we were, what we were, and even where we would be today had it not been for the sacrificed lamb called Jesus. You see, we would do well to consider what was in that cup that came down from heaven. Without exception, every sin of all ages was laid upon him. Him who knew no sin. There was the public sins. There was hidden sins. There was the sins of royalty and the sin of peasants. The sin of the lowest criminals and the sin of the self-righteousness. Peter's sin and Judas Iscariot. Cup was not only their sins, but ours, yours, and mine was there to be ingested into that sinless body and sinless life and sinless mind. If he had not shrunk from the horror of that cup, he would not have been a holy God. That's right. There was something about it, lips that had never been defiled was now consuming the corruption of all humanity's shoulders, never carried the weight and burden of sin, was feeling the awfulness of that weight, and it came crushing down upon his sinless shoulders. There was a change settled over this. He had never faced this before. He had cast out demons. He had healed the sick, and he raised the dead, and the lame had walked, and everything was under his authority, but he had never tasted sin. He had never felt the ugliness, the awfulness, and the horror of a sin. And yet, yours and mine was there. And he was tasting that. How can we reach into your mind, maybe, and make you understand a little bit of what's going on? Let's try this. Picture a Christian home where the love of God is, where it's prevalent. Everything is there. You don't have any, any lewd pictures. Uh, you don't have any any music uh, that was loud and ungodly. Uh, you don't have any liquor and you don't have uh, cigarette smoke swirling from here to there. And actually, just a normal Christian home where love is. Yes. And then can you imagine a worldly, foul-mouthed individual coming in your home with the atmosphere of profanity and indecent acts and all of that coming into, into your home? That would be a sickening disgust to us. Because we don't have that in our home. And we would shrink from this type of situation. And if that is the case, think of a holy God. Think of the agony of our Lord. As he began to feel and taste all the sins of all humanity that come upon him. And, and he endured it while the feel for the whole world of all mankind was placed upon his sinless shoulders. There was a feeling there he'd never felt before. And he had to handle this. He had to recognize that this had to be dealt with. Yes. You see, there was no power in heaven or in earth or in hell that could have brought Jesus Christ to Gethsemane 
but sin. That's right. Your sin and mine, sin of the whole world, it was the lawfulness of that, the ugliness of that, that made Jesus shrink back. But because of his love for humanity, this is the part I like as he went on and finally he accepted the cup. He drank the cup uh, in spite of how revolting it was to him because he loved us. He was willing to yield the will of the flesh to the will of the spirit yes. and say, all right, it has to be done. I will ingest it. I will take it upon my shoulders and I will drink the sins of all humanity. So love motivated Jesus. Yes. Yes. The great man's iniquities and destroy him. Mm. How does this work? Well, I've used this often and I want to use it again. Medical science has discovered that human blood does not have the power to combat diphtheria. But in a certain kind of a horse are antibodies in the blood which are capable of destroying the diphtheria, diphtheria germ. So when this germ is injected in the blood of this horse, it becomes sick, not with its own sickness, but because it had taken a human ailment in its bloodstream. And then the blood of the horse destroys the bacteria germ, produces an antitoxin, and it's this serum which has been used in the prevention of the dreaded diphtheria. And so let's make an analogy with Jesus. Humanity was sick with sin. The blood of no sacrificial offering could destroy the germ of sin. Blood of bulls and goats was not the answer. But Jesus, through love, offered his body and drank the germ of sin. The germ was destroyed and a marvelous serum was produced. For those who are willing to be inoculated, there is a glorious victory over the disease of sin. Yeah, Hallelujah. Because Jesus came and took it in his own body and left us through his blood. Thank God to cleanse us from all sin and from all iniquity. What love there is and what agony of the cross, what agony of Gethsemane. And from Gethsemane then, he marched from his mental, mental attack, where it was mental, giving his life then, and saying, I'm willing to go. I can go now. Gethsemane was necessary before he could ever, ever mount the cross. I'm wondering sometimes if we can't take that analogy with us, that our Gethsemanes are necessary before we can ever carry the cross. If we do not have a Gethsemane where we give ourselves over to God, and where we just simply look and say, God, it's not my will. I know I have something I desire and something I want to do, but it's not my will. It's yours, and there Gethsemane, and then... Of course, a cross would be far easier. Cross just simply means sacrificing. It's right. giving ourselves. Right. Just as if we placed ourselves upon a cross someplace and give our life and our bodies as a sacrifice. Christ demands that. So he walked from Gethsemane. There he was met with his friend Judas, who had betrayed him, who sought, of course, to bring in the kingdom of God, I'm sure, and thought if he would just cause Jesus again to act for himself. But of course, Jesus again, always subject to that which indwelt him. I like that, always subject to that which was inside of him. Always questioning, is it me or is it the Spirit? 
was able then to walk, was able then to resist. He walked out of the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he was met with cruel hands. He there placed a kiss of his trail by a friend that had walked with him for three years and a half. Sometimes if we don't think he knows how we feel when friends have betrayed us, just look and you'll find his feelings with Judas and his feelings with Peter, where Peter just declared, it doesn't make any difference what everybody else does. I'll never, never, never forsake you. And then he curses him. And yet inside on the cross, Hmm. Jesus' first words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. First words was for humanity. And there he underwent the night of torture, underwent the, under the sadistic hands of man where they smote him, and finally they nailed him to a cross. There he was hanged in our place. And there he suffered in our sheep. And there he died. And as that precious blood flowed from that body, it was cleansing. The world of all sin and of all iniquity, and leaving lost humanity away back to God. They've never known this ever since Adam and Eve was put out of the garden. And now then, communion with God. The Bible says, when he died, the veil of the temple was rent from top to the bottom, exposing the hypocrisy of it all. Let us realize that now. We can come in to the throne of God. And there, without the blood of bulls and goats, but through the sacrificed blood of Jesus Christ, enter into God Himself. In fact, He asks us. He leaves an invitation and tells us to come to the throne of grace and mercy. Then, of course, He took His body down from the cross. Placed it in two, put the seal on it, rolled the stone there, and placed the guard so that he would come out. But he did. Yes, he did. And he's alive. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you. Conquered it for us. Conquered it for us. Could I take just a few minutes to go through from the saints that I think is Okay, I'm always a weird creature, but when something this something goes against the Bible, then I can't go with it. And I simply cannot swallow a good fragment of a Sunday resurrection. I just simply can't handle that. See, Jesus said that he would be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Now, I want to go over something real quickly. Jesus was not crucified on the crown. No, he wasn't. He was actually put in the grave Wednesday just before sunset and was resurrected Saturday at sunset. Come on. Now, the reason the church has mistaken Friday as the day of crucifixion is because the scripture mentioned the Sabbath. And they assume, of course, that he's speaking of the regular Jewish Sabbath. But there is no indication in the Bible that he was buried Friday on sunset. If this was the case, He would have been in the grave only one day and one night, and that way he would prove his own words untrue, and he would negate his only proof of his Messiahship. He did not prove his Messiahship, and you've heard this on the fact that he raised the dead and they healed the sick, 
and, and all of that, his one indication of who he was, was uh, in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. If Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And of course, if he was not, that proved he was not crashed. And no wonder that the devil really has a good time out of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. It's because he has no valid claim of being the Messiah at all. Because he said this is what it is. Let's look at some of the confusion. John 19, 31, the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day. Now what you've got to do is see what the Scripture says. They sought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. This special Sabbath high day was actually the Passover. Now there is no Easter. It's mentioned once, of course, and that is the mistranslation uh, of the Passover. So when we talk about Easter, that all comes from the from the fables of Ishtar and all of that, and you get all your little bunny rabbits and all this stuff which is pagan and, and doesn't doesn't do justice to what is happening on that day. Matthew 26, I'm going fast, so you mark those down. And he said, go into the city to such a day. My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them and made ready the Passover. Now, I heard ministers deal with that, and they said because he was going to die, he had to, had to eat the Passover early. But they did no such a thing. He did it the way it's supposed to do. The preparation day spoken of in John 19 and 1931 was the Tuesday sunset, the Wednesday sunset. They always had their days beginning at sunset. Now, the next day was to be a high day, which is to be a special Sabbath for the Passover feast. It was not the ordinary weekly Sabbath, which was two days later. Uh, you can read that, uh, verify that in Leviticus 23, 6 to 11. I should read it, but you can read it. Now Luke 9, 22 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain and be raised the third day. Now let's face in Scripture, third day means Jesus was dead three days and full night. Three full night. Now this is our reason for believing this. When days and nights are both mentioned, then it cannot be parts of three days and three nights. It has to be three full days and three full nights. You can find that, of course, and verify that through Esther 4, 16, 5, and 1, 1 Samuel 30, 12, and Revelation 11, 9, and 1. Now, the Jews understood Christ to mean after three days, or three full days, and three full nights. They understood that. So, of course, they had the soldiers to guard the tomb at least that long, so he wouldn't get out. Now, it was a custom for the dead, for the morning for the dead, three full days and nights, called the days of weeping. That was followed by four days of lamentation, thus making seven days. Find that in Genesis 24, 27, 41, 1 Samuel 31, 13, Job 2, 13. Now, according to the rabbinical idea, the spirit wondered about the sepulcher for three days, hoping to re-enter the body. But corruption set in when it did, the spirit left. This was believed to be on the fourth day when loud lamentations began. Hence, on the fourth day, of course, Lazarus was supposed to sing. You're reading Acts 2.27, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Of course, Jesus' body did not, did not see corruption. 
Now, Jewish historian Herodotus states that the embalming process does not take place until after three days when the spirit was supposed to be gone. And that's why the women were taking sweet spices to anoint Jesus in Luke 24 and Mark 16. The Jews did not accept evidence of the identification of a dead body after three days because of the corruption that took place quickly in the East. So the body had to be uh, able to be identified. So this period of three days and three, he should remain dead three days and three nights. Now here's the order of events. You want to follow after that. They ate the Passover on Tuesday evening, according to Matthew 26 and 20. Included in this time was the foot washing, the Lord's Supper, the announcement of betrayal, the making of the new covenant. That's in Matthew 26, 21, 29. Then they departed from the upper room and started on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane and its agony. We just read concerning that. Jesus was betrayed and arrested early Tuesday evening. His trial lasted throughout Tuesday night and early Wednesday morning, Matthew 26, 57, 27, and 26. The Lord was crucified about 9 o'clock on Wednesday morning. At 12 o'clock noon, darkness filled the land. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at the time of the evening sacrifice, Jesus died. He was buried on Wednesday about sunset. That's Matthew 27, 57, 66. Wednesday was preparation day. Thursday was the great high Sabbath which was not the regular weekly Sabbath, which would be two full days away. The special Sabbath, or the first day of the week, of the unleavened bread, which was from our Wednesday sunset to Thursday sunset, Jesus was buried on Wednesday at about sunset or 6 p.m. The next day being the Passover, high Sabbath, Thursday, the ladies could not break the Sabbath by adding more spices to Jesus' body. The next day, Friday, was preparation for their weekly Sabbath, which was Saturday. Then Saturday was the regular Jewish Sabbath, so they couldn't relate on Sunday morning, which is the first day of the week. Luke 24, 1, 3. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came out and, and to the supper group, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the supper group, and they entered in and found not the body of Jesus. Jesus actually had come out of the tomb somewhere between 3 and 6 o'clock on Saturday evening, and he had been resurrected all that time. He was not resurrected on Sunday morning. He was alive on Sunday morning, and he's alive today, all right? And you just stand and worship God. He's alive, and he is well. Let's worship him. Father, we thank you for life and that more abundantly and for the privilege of knowing you. Father, and knowing your power, your strength, and your life. And knowing your scriptures, Father, which passes us to you, to your power and to your grace. Father, we appreciate you this morning because of Calvary, because of Gethsemane, because of your resurrection in your life, Father, and can be lived in us. Hallelujah. We glorify you, Father. We glorify you. Praise the Lord. I ask that you wish to come to me have an inspection for something. How wonderful it is to know Jesus and to know his presence and his power. Praise the name of the Lord.